it's a transition which I think will be painful. There'll be winners and losers, and I think there will be, particularly in the US, legal action over it. Well, I think it's become more complicated post-Brexit because now we've, you potentially have two sets of regulations that you have to comply with as an organization. Whether the Western world can achieve net zero is doubtful. Um, therefore, we need a harmonized global carbon trading platform. Hello and welcome to our new episode of Risk and Regulation Unraveled, our Grant Thornton's Financial Services podcast. I'm Irina Velkova, your regular host, and I bring to you conversations about the dynamic world of risk and regulation. We help our financial services clients understand new regulatory developments, upcoming changes, and how to stay ahead of the regulatory curve by inviting renowned experts to share their insights. Today's episode is part of a short series in which we talk about what the year ahead will bring to the key sectors in financial services. To discuss the main themes that we think are going to dominate the capital market sector this year, I have invited Harp Sidhu, who is the head of capital markets at Grant Thornton. Harps has got over 20 years experience working in major consulting firms, leading large-scale consulting, regulatory, risk and strategy projects, and covering major global banking, asset and wealth management organizations. Thank you for joining us today, Harps. Great to have you. Thank you, Irina. Well, Harps, given the current state of affairs in the world, it's simply impossible that um, we can start this conversation without me asking you how have the capital markets been affected by the crisis in Ukraine so far, in your view? I must also note that we are recording this on day 16 since the conflict began, and it is possible that by the time we release this episode, things would have moved on even further. But in any case, it's worth taking stock as to where we stand today. Yeah, well, first of all, it's been a horrible 16 days. I mean, obviously, um, it's, it's a really regrettable conflict. The way the markets have been impacted by it has been, I would call it patchy. So there have been, you know, the, the sanctions lists are evolving. The, the regulatory response globally is evolving. Um, and we saw it with, you know, for example, uh, nickel prices the other day on the LME. So it's been very up and down and uh, there's a lot of uncertainty and volatility, which um, is just to be expected. I don't think we've ever had this response to a, this sort of economic response to a crisis before. Yeah, it's an interesting you say that because I was recently um, discussing with some fund managers that lots of people on the current desk haven't actually seen this kind of volatility since the 70s. Yeah. No, and that that's is very, it's very pocketed volatility. It's not market-wide at times. It's, it's particular asset classes and the level of uncertainty on who's on a sanctions list, who will decide not to deal with the Russian counterparty. So there's a lot of, um, I guess we've, we've never had a social media crisis like this, right? So there's a lot of PR that's driving decision making as well. Um, taking this aside almost, which I know is really difficult to do, but what do you think um, are the kind of me medium to longer term, if you like, developments that we're going to see in the capital market sector this year? Well, I, I think you've got to look at the impact of the pandemic as well. So it's left a lot of economies very indebted in a way that's historically unprecedented. We've got, you know, the inflation rate in the US yesterday hit 7.9%. So we've got a real risk, I think, of 
effectively stagflation, which we've never really seen. And a lot of clients we speak to ask the question of, you know, what is our inflation target and why is that the target? Why is it 2%? Why is it 3%? Like, what's the right level? Because we've, we've seen a massive deflationary period and now we're seeing a massive inflationary period. Does that level out or is it, you know, is it normal? I think the, the closest comparator is probably what the Japanese economy went through after their crisis. And the the one piece of positivity, I think, in all of this is if you look at the way Japan has evolved, fine, the retirement age has gone up a bit, but earnings continue to be okay, employment continues to be okay, like the world can live with this. Um, and I think the relative levels of indebtedness are pretty even. So there, there aren't outliers in the sort of G7, G8 countries. Yeah, no, as you say, at least we know that the market has lived through that at least once in our time. So we know that the markets can cope with it, right? Yeah, very um, robustly. But yeah, the, and it has the, been The positive. question really is, you know, like all of the central bank um, both short term on, in terms of interest rates and long term in terms of QE, interest rate suppression. Once that starts to unwind, I think that might be uneven. <clears throat> so the way the ECB moves, the way the Federal Reserve moves, the way the Bank of England moves and some of the other countries have been most impacted. I'm not sure that's going to be time coordinated. So you may see some currency volatility as a result. If you were to speculate, and I, I know if this is speculative, where, where we can see that currency volatility, particularly. If, if I knew that, I'd be uh, doing something different right now. <laughs> <laughs> OK, great, thank you. I guess, again, despite all this going on and, and clearly the um, uncertainty that the markets is experiencing, are there any other key developments that you see are going to to be um, critical for the capital market sector in 2022? If you were to, to choose, for example, I don't know, three or four key themes, uh, which which these would be? Well, I think the, the eyeball transition is a very obvious one. And uh, I call it a transition sort of um, in jest because we can't get away from, in particular, LIBOR for things like ownership debt, some of the Asian economies. So it's, you know, it's, it's a transition which I think will be painful. There'll be winners and losers. And I think there will be, particularly in the US, legal action over it. And it's not an easy thing to do. That said, I, I do think that um, moving away from having a bank's counterparty credit, moving your effective borrowing rate is a positive thing. Um, I think also uh, post-Brexit, so particularly so we're talking about financial services we're talking about capital markets people often forget the reason capital markets are important which is they allow for trade to function globally they lower the interest rate we all pay on our mortgages they move capital to the most efficient places and look they, they've had conduct issues before but they've been in corners of their business not in the whole business so if you lambast the whole industry, I think that's very, you know, it's been politically popular to do, but I think it's a bit unfair. So I think having that industry function well is very important for the whole planet. 
I think um, a lot of people moved into various European jurisdictions that were very welcoming at first to try and get more business into the EU. Um, now they're finding that the regulators are becoming a bit more hard-lined about how many people they have in each of those locations. And it's not a zero-sum game. So a lot of a lot of the global banks looked at it like, you know, <clears throat> say we have, I'll make up a number, 2,000 people in London. We'll move 200 to Europe, we'll have 1,800 in London. It doesn't quite work like that because you're doubling up. It's a new jurisdiction um, and you need as much, you know, compliance, oversight, internal audit, finance, risk, you know, it's essentially entering a new jurisdiction. And I think the, the very dangerous thing, in my very personal view, is um, this EU view of we want clearing, we want settlement, we want everything onshore and um, also portfolio management. Okay. Because if you, if you balkanize the world in that way, things get more expensive and that hurts the underlying economy. Yeah, I was going to say, actually, we are to your earlier point on just moving people around, for example, it's not only that, because obviously the risk and the compliance cost is going to increase massively. And as you say, with this EU requirement for um, having it all onshore, that's adding additional, even further cost. Um, yeah. how, how do you see companies actually coping with that post-Brexit from, from what we do in our work? Well, I think it's become more complicated post-Brexit because now we you potentially have two sets of regulations that you have to comply with as an organisation. You know, a lot of the regulatory work we're doing at the moment, we caution regulatory bodies, industry bodies, in terms of if you change too much too fast, you just add more and more cost onto these organisations of one, achieving the change, and two, maintaining two sets of compliance for two sets of rules. That said, I think we we definitely welcome the announcements recently. So both the, the you know the listings review, the Khalifa review on um, fintech, the um, the recent announcements around some of the changes to financial regulation, and I, and I think the UK has actually been very positive for the first time in a long time because we all listened to the only news story was Brexit for ages, then it was COVID for ages, and now. We obviously have this horrible geopolitical situation, but the one positive I would take is the regulators, Treasury, yeah, PRA, FTA, are finally looking forward rather than looking back at the financial crisis. They don't have a choice today, given the current development. They have a choice. No, they definitely have a choice. So they could choose to be backward looking, be punitive on the financial sector, be, you know, blame the financial sector, which a lot of politicians have done over time. But the choice I think they've made now is we need to be a competitive country on a global basis. And it, it's very obvious if you do the analysis that from a, for example, from a tax perspective, it's more punitive to be here than almost any other major financial centre. And that, that can't be the end solution if we want a financial sector that thrives, that drives the economy, that also is a massive taxpayer to the economy. Yeah, no, definitely. What we see as well is indeed that, that the role 
the, the regulators have understood that their role has changed since all these developments and they have to be indeed much more forward looking and it's come up in, in all conversations we've had with the, the other heads of the, the various sectors we have at GT, frankly. Um, let's let's unpack a bit IBOR and the transition transition you mentioned there. Uh, obviously, there would be, as you say, some sort of complications around the uh, Asian markets. Could you could you possibly um, speculate again, if I may, as to how is this going to be then intertwined with uh, what the UK is doing about that? Well, I think the UK transition is largely done from a within the UK's territorial borders yeah. kind of discussion, but LIBOR is widely used around the around the world, um, particularly in the Asian markets, and that's very difficult to unwind. Um, the US have taken a slightly different approach, but the real challenge for our clients on this has been just coordinating their view with the different regulators. And there are there's a level of complexity to this because there will be winners and losers. So that there is an inherent conflict in this whole transition because some people will make money and some people will lose money. As in, you mean in the actual process? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, understood. Okay, well, obviously quite challenging um, to tackle in, in practical terms, both the, the Brexit and the eyeball transition um, for, for our clients. Um, the, the two other kind of subjects that have popped up in all of our conversations so far, frankly, have been around ESG and hybrid working. I know the, yeah. the capital markets sector probably has been having quite a different stand, frankly, on both of those. <laughs> um, is there anything that surprises you actually on either how, how the capital market sector is looking at ESG from obviously not the pure retail perspective um, and, and also how they're tackling hybrid slash remote working, future of work, etc.? Yeah, so, I mean, to take ESG first, I think um, it's, it's a subject that was reductively spoken about in my view. Um, and now that people are finally getting to a level of maturity around how they tackle it, there are trade-offs to make. So, you know, you can't you can't stop burning coal if three major economies decide they're not going to stop burning coal. So what do you do about that? You can't cut off energy companies from the global supply chain because people will starve, people will die. It's like it's, it's not. So, but it's it's a long-term problem that requires real discriminatory thinking around the trade-offs. So, if you look at you know soybeans consume much more carbon than most things, cannabis actually sequesters carbon highly as a crop. So, what's your view on those things? And then the the complexity is, as with many issues, and I feel sorry for the financial sector in this way. They. The regulators and the policymakers tend to rely on the financial sector to be the police. And it's really not their job because what, what can you actually do if you're one bank, you can't turn around to BP or Shell or Exxon and say, I'm cutting you off. That's not the right answer for the planet, frankly. But we're seeing people engage more with their clients to understand what their plan is to get to net zero. Whether the Western world can achieve net zero is doubtful. Um, therefore, we need a harmonized global carbon trading platform so that people can effectively sequester carbon in some places, sell those credits so people can buy them and get to net neutral. Do you think that we need to have much more of a 
intervention, if you like, from regulators globally to implement those kind of policies and regulations where, as you say, we don't end up with the financial sector having lease indeed um, some other companies. I don't think it can be done in isolation by any party. So it's a, it's a corporate problem, it's a buy side problem, it's a sell side problem, but everyone needs to come together. Um, and at the moment, everyone's got their own framework for dealing with it. But at some point, we need some convergence, I think. Yeah, and from what I'm seeing, actually, because of the fact that everybody's got their own framework, I think we are probably going to see even more deviation in terms of how firms in different markets are tackling this and where they're focusing. I can see already quite a yeah. few differences between how the US market is, is dealing with it versus the UK market. Say, for example, the, the, the point you mentioned about the carbon trading platform, for example, is much um, or the US market is much more in favour of it from what I can see because they are very pragmatic. Whereas obviously we are slightly more on the cautious side with that in Europe and in the UK yeah. included. It's a it's a global problem being dealt with in a disparate way. Is the way I would sum it up. So, you know, even if you look at um, you know, funds, underliers, counterparties, to get clean data on what you think is green and what isn't is very, very difficult. Clean and reliable because I'm seeing that everybody's yeah. twisting and interpreting the data yeah. the way it works for them. Look, it's, it's not data anyone's ever had to really come up with before. So I have all the sympathy in the world for everyone trying to do it, but the dispersion at the moment between, you know, you go to one data platform versus another in terms of what green score you get for an underlier is massive. But how do you measure it? Like, you know, and there are trade-offs to be made. So if you start telling your employees you need to come back into the office, that increases your carbon footprint as an organization. Yeah. It does appear to me that the answer is around global standardization and it may not be the best cut of data, and but yeah. it will be transparent and comparable, which seems to be what we are desperately missing alongside the data as well, as yeah. in mechanisms to actually compare. Well, it's like, I think it's like the COP conference. It's sort of, it's a good start, but it's going to take years to get to an end state that's acceptable. Yeah, unfortunately, with many of those things. And what about hybrid working? I know that a lot of our clients and, and counterparties we, we deal with in, in the capital market sector are already actually back to their offices. How are they embracing the concept of hybrid working? It's uh, when I talked about dispersion earlier, I'd use that same word again, like it's it's vastly different by organization. I think it will take probably a year or two years or maybe three for everyone to get to a level of normality. But let's have some sympathy for the fact that, you know, there have been some benefits to hybrid working, big benefits like, you know, people taking care of their children, people being able to make time for their families. There have also been some big downsides, I think in that humans are fundamentally social creatures. So, you know, I, I think we have to go to, back to some level of working in the office, assuming there isn't a new variant of the pandemic that stops that. Um, because the, the one thing I've noted from a GT perspective in particular is um, the, the more junior people, the people entering the workforce, they don't get the same level of engagement or training 
because by nature every Zoom call is transactional and it, it misses the human experience of sitting next to someone you can learn from. How how are you thinking about this approach of, you know, let's say some of the large investment banks of kind of pressing people to really, really go back to the office on a five days basis? Do you think that's necessary? In some ways, yes. So like, you know, if you look at trading and sales businesses, um, even if you look at the concerns some people have about their wealth businesses, there are conduct issues that are way more difficult to manage when people are working remotely. Mm. But also, if you're, you know, it depends on, it totally depends on your business and your industry. So in our industry, like all of consulting, all of the accounting firms, we've done extremely well with remote working. So it's very hard to say that we want to unwind it immediately. Whereas if you're a low latency trader, you need to be in the office. So I think it, it, it's brought about an important debate around which jobs need to be in the office and which don't. But I do think there's this underlying human nature of just connection with people you work with and learning from them that underlies all of it. Yeah, no, absolutely. We don't, we don't want a dystopian world where everyone sits looking at a screen for 12 hours a day. I mean, that's not a good outcome for the entire global population. But having the flexibility to do it when you need to is a good thing. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. And as you said, we are uh, humans by nature are social creatures, so we, we want to actually have this physical interaction in a way. I guess just a final question, um, given where we are today, beginning of March, I think, um, what's been the most regular advice you have already been giving to our capital markets clients so far in terms of what, what the year ahead is going to bring to them? What the year ahead? Yeah. Um, so I, th I think the, the entire capital markets industry is going through um, one of the biggest transformations that any industry has gone through. Like everything's fundamentally changed in terms of, you know, fine, last year was great for revenues because of the volatility, but that's not sustainable. So I think the, the biggest thing that that industry is going through is a simplification and a digitization. Some of those technologies are ready, some of them aren't. Um, also, the way people look at the technology that underlies their business. And uh, I mean, I bear in mind that the, the biggest banks spend more than the entire Silicon Valley on technology in a year. But a lot of it's very old technology, very inefficient. So they need to find ways to remove the cost from that platform. And our view philosophically is frankly, forget which system you're using. Think about functionality layers. And where do you get each piece of functionality from? And in the future world, I think it's going to be a mix of people selling their own functionality, open source functionality, and um, you know the the other thing is the thing that's very present is the transition to cloud. And actually, oddly enough, the transition to cloud is very expensive. It costs more than your traditional technology until you cloud native your platforms. Interesting. From what from what you're saying, it sounds that most of our conversations actually around technology and cloud, as you say, as opposed to some of the really huge um, regulatory kind of challenges and, and changes that are coming through. Well, the, yeah. the regulatory challenges are going nowhere. 
and they, they've been around for a long time. They'll continue to be, whether you look at CSDR, whether you look post-Brexit changes to regulation, um, SFTR, all of that stuff, and trade and transaction reporting, which will continue to be a pain for everyone for a long time. But I think now is the time, and that, that's my personal view, and now is the time to look forward and think about how you can make some positive changes rather than being defensive all the time. Excellent. Well, Hubs, thank you very much for, for this conversation and, and for your insightful thoughts. Certainly a lot to be digested uh, for, for our clients in capital markets and obviously some big themes to think about, such as the IBO transition, obviously the impact of Brexit and operations post-Brexit, if you like. Um, the usual suspect in all these conversations, the issue in hybrid working, which is quite interesting. And, and most importantly, you'll note that it is really a good time to look forward now and, and think about how we how we structure the operations and the transition to much more of a modern technology and particularly the cloud. So uh, I'm sure it will be a very interesting year ahead, albeit probably difficult as well for the market. But thank you again. And I'd like to thank our listeners as well for, for tuning in. I hope you also find this conversation very helpful. And to leave you with some more regulatory food for thought, we have recently published our UK Regulatory Handbook 2022, your one-stop shop for all key regulatory developments in the year ahead. You can also sign up to the Financial Services Regulatory Newsletter to receive weekly updates and invites into your inbox. And to stay up to date with upcoming episodes, be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Amazon Music. We'll be back with our next episode very shortly to talk about other exciting topics of the risk and regulatory world. Thank you again and goodbye.